The first Thanksgiving came after that dreadful winter, which deposited on the windswept hillside cemetery half of the colonists. Only seven members of the colony were healthy enough to tend the sick, yet they gave thanks. Why? Because, my friends, they had a different view of life and death than we of the 20th century. Take death, for example. Stuart Barton Babbage, in his book Man in Nature and Grace, speaks of the modern attitude towards death. He says, Modern man is pathologically afraid of pain and death. A school of American educationists are busily engaged in revising nursery rhymes. No longer are the ears of children to be offended with tales of violence and sudden death. Grimm's fairy tales, the tales of Hans Anderson, are all to be expurgated and revised. All references to evil and wickedness, to suffering and death, are to be suppressed and expunged. In the future, children will learn about the three blind mice who all ran after the farmer's wife, who cut them some cheese with a carving knife. Did you ever hear such a tale in all your life? Of the same school of educationalists are those most chiefly concerned in proclaiming what are called the facts of life. No longer are children to be threatened with complexes and laden with inhibitions. The facts of life are to be openly proclaimed. Dr. Benjamin Spock has written an enlightened guide in his Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. Millions of copies have already been sold. And the doctor advises, tell the children all about the facts of life, but never, never tell them, he warns, about the facts of death. Yes, tell them about the beginning of life, but nothing about the end. So we're presented with this astonishing situation. On the one hand, the facts of life openly proclaimed. On the other hand, the facts of death hidden, denied, ignored and suppressed. This is a far cry, my friends, from what happened in the days of the Pilgrim Fathers. The fear of death today results largely from the fear of coming judgment. It's appointed unto men once to die, says Scripture, and after this cometh judgment. This is the basic explanation of man's nervous fear and secret apprehension. Epicurus said long ago, what men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it is not. As Babbage says, if death were extinction, how simple everything would be. We could then say with cheerful irresponsibility, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But we know that death is not the end. But after this cometh judgment. My friends, it is the certainty of inescapable death and the uncertainty of what is to follow that is the most dread anguish in the world. Let me give you an example from political and literary biography. We all know of Fyodor Dostoevsky. He was arrested with other members of the reading circle and charged with offences against the censorship of Russia. And on December 22, 1849, the 44 accused men were taken to the drill ground of Semyonovsky. The sheriff read out the sentences. Again and again, the fateful words were pronounced. Sentence to be shot. Years later, Dostoevsky used to hear them as he awoke in the night. The accused were forced to put on the white shirts of the condemned, and for more than 20 minutes they stood in the bitter Russian cold, 50 degrees below freezing point. A priest invited them to make their confessions. Only one did so. They all touched the crucifix with their lips, kissing it eagerly, hurriedly, 
just as though they were anxious to grasp something that might be useful to them afterwards. Dostoevsky kept thinking, and he actually said, It's impossible. They can't mean to kill us. But his nearest companion pointed to a cart near the scaffold, with coffins covered with a large cloth. About twenty paces from where he was standing were three posts. The first three prisoners were fastened to them, with white caps drawn over their faces, so they could not see the rifles pointed at them. Then a group of soldiers took their stand opposite each post. Dostoevsky was the eighth. Therefore he would be among the third lot to go up. He had about five minutes to live. Those five minutes seemed to be an almost interminable period, an enormous wealth of time. He seemed to be living in those minutes so many lives, there was no need as yet to think of the last moment. So he divided up the time into parts. One for saying farewell to his friends. Two minutes for that. Then a couple more for thinking over his own life and all about himself. And then another minute for a last look round. He contrived to kiss the two who were nearest to him. He thought of his brother Michael and his family. Then he embarked on those two minutes which he had allotted to looking into himself. He put it to himself as quickly and as clearly as possible that here he was, a living thinking man, and that in three minutes he'd be a nobody. Or is somebody? Or something? What? And where? Worst of all was this thought. What would I do if I were not to die now? Men not condemned to die have seemed life far too lightly. What if I were returned to life again? What an eternity of days and all mine! How I should grudge and count up every minute of it, so as not to waste a single instant. This thought became such a terrible burden upon his brain that he could not bear it. He wished they'd shoot him quickly and have done with it. He just waited and waited. There was a terrible fear. He felt feeble and helpless. There was a choking in his throat. He did not lose his wits, but he was absolutely powerless to move. Then, when the soldiers had actually loaded their rifles, there was a shouting and other noises, and an officer came galloping across the square, waving a white handkerchief. He brought a gracious pardon from the Emperor. Dostoevsky's sentence was commuted to four years' imprisonment in Siberia and four years' service as a private soldier. Then the cart was uncovered. It didn't contain coffins, but convict uniforms. The sentence of death had been only a threat, a lesson not to be forgotten. But one who'd been blindfolded to be shot had gone mad, never recovered. Not one escaped without lifelong injury to his nervous system. My friends, in a sense, we're all as surely condemned to death as was Dostoevsky. The Bible says, in Adam, all die. There's no discharge in that war. It was Elizabeth I who on a deathbed cried out, a million, a million pounds for a moment of time. But we can't bribe the grim reaper, whoever we are. But my friends, we offer you good news unlimited for the second thing to say is just as surely as Dostoevsky, we've been reprieved, even more surely, he was reprieved to die again. I read in the second epistle to Timothy, the first chapter and verse 10, that Christ hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the good news. You say abolished death, but people still die? My friends, we need to understand the language of Scripture. The New Testament speaks of death and the judgment as already having been finished with, legally, in Christ, because he died. 
he was judged in our place. We know that empirically, death remains. But according to the New Testament, it's lost its power. Christ has abolished it. He's drawn its sting. For the Christian death is now only asleep. That's good news, my friends. To understand it, we need to realise that Christ was our representative as surely as Adam. The Bible says that we were crucified with him, that we rose with him, that we ascended with him, that we sat down in heaven, in heavenly places with him. Do you see it, my friends? His death was ours, his resurrection was ours. Let me give you an illustration or two. You remember David of Old Testament times? He was a good shepherd. He was also a prophet and a general and a king. He never lost a battle because he represented in his good aspects the great saviour, the great good shepherd, the greatest prophet of all, the greatest captain or general of any army, the king of kings, Christ, who never loses a battle. David represented him. Think, for example, on David's first conflict. Remember, it was with Goliath, the giant, and David so slight and small and apparently unarmed. And it was decided that if David won the battle, then Israel would be the conquerors of the Philistines, declared so by their representative victory. But if Goliath won, then the Israelites would be the slaves of the Philistines. So when David won and cut off the head of the giant with his own sword, just as Christ destroyed Satan with his own sword of death on Calvary, then it was the Israelites cried out, We've won! We've won! But my friends, they'd been hiding in the rocks, behind the trees. It was David who won for them. And that's the way it is with our general, our good shepherd, our prophet, our king, our David. David means beloved. He represents the beloved son of God. Who on Calvary won a victory for all of us, my friends. When he abolished death by his resurrection, the whole human race legally rose with him. Thus one day all will rise. For believers, death is now only asleep. Take the story of Samson. You remember Samson? Awaking at midnight, going up to the mountains with the doorposts, the doors of the city, ascending with those to the hilltops, a beautiful figure of our great judge and saviour, because all the judges of Israel were redeemers or saviours. And here again, Samson in his good aspects represents the true judge and redeemer, our Lord Jesus, who woke from the sleep of death and took the power of death, the gates of death, to heaven itself as a conqueror, various trophies. And then later, when Samson was between two pillars, as Christ later was between two thieves, you remember that Samson bowed himself and willingly died, thus destroying the oppressors of his people. Samson did more for his people in his death than in all his life. And so it was with Christ. My friend, when the Son of God died on Calvary, he destroyed death. He has turned it for all who believe into a sleep. That's why Christ could say, Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. They may sleep, my friends. Their mortal remains may be buried or cremated. But they sleep in Jesus, one day to rise again in fullness of life. To have an existence that will measure with the life of God himself. The good news of the gospel is that sin and Satan and death, all our enemies have been finished with by Christ. And so in John 5 and verse 24 we read that he that believeth 
has everlasting life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. My friend, do you believe it? Do you see it? Heaven begins here. Immortal life is not something to be received one day. It is ours the moment we believe and for as long as we believe. He that believeth has eternal life. It doesn't say will have. He has it now, my friends. Do you believe? We must confess there are millions who have only animal life, who are dead in trespasses and sins. Why? Because they do not believe the good news. Well, why don't they? Perhaps it is, my friends, because they think they are too good to need the good news. Human nature is pharisaical, even at the best. Religious people, even religious leaders, are very slow to accept the real good news of Scripture. Every man, regardless of his church affiliation or lack of it, is at heart a Pharisee. He believes he can establish his own righteousness and that then God will love him. Take, for example, the story of John Wesley. Uh, The biographer Fitchett says of Wesley, He had sat at the feet of many instructors and had read many books. He'd been a sacerdotalist, an ascetic, a mystic, a legalist, all in turns, nay, all together. And yet, through all these stages, he had persistently misread the true order of the spiritual world. He believed that a changed life was not the fruit of forgiveness, but its cause. Good works, he held, came before forgiveness and constituted the title to it. They didn't come after it as the effects. He had in every mood of his soul, that is, missed the great secret of Christianity, lying so near and level to the intelligence of a child, the secret of a personal salvation, the free gift of God's infinite love through Christ, a salvation received through Christ and by faith, a salvation attested by the Spirit of God and verified in the consciousness. My friend, what this biographer read in Wesley's biography reveals the secret of that spiritual giant's original poverty, but it also reveals the secret of our original poverty. Let me read you some things from Wesley himself, beginning with his childhood and running on into his manhood. Here's John Wesley. I was carefully taught that I could only be saved by universal obedience, by keeping all the commandments of God, in the meaning of which I was diligently instructed. But all that was said to me of inward obedience or holiness I neither understood nor remembered. So I was indeed as ignorant of the true meaning of the law as I was of the gospel of Christ. Then Wesley speaks about his experience as a schoolboy. What I now hope to be saved by was, one, not being so bad as other people, two, having still a kindness for religion, three, reading the Bible, going to church and saying my prayers. Then Wesley, talking about his later years before his conversion, said this, By my continued endeavour to keep his whole law, inward and outward, to the utmost of my power, I was persuaded I should be accepted of him. I even thought I was then in a state of salvation. Not too different to many of us, is it, my friend? After his failure as a missionary, into his diary went these words, I was strongly convinced that the cause of that uneasiness was unbelief and that the gaining of a true living faith was the one thing needful for me. But still I fixed not this faith on its right object. I meant only faith in God, not faith in or through Christ. 
I knew not that I was wholly devoid of this faith, only thought I had enough of it. But my friends, after John Wesley heard Luther's words about the good news, about salvation full and free because of Christ's works, Christ's doings, Christ's sufferings, then Wesley wrote this, I felt my heart strangely warmed, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone now for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Ah, there it is, my friends. When we're saved from guilt, we're saved from sin and death. It's possible to be just so near to success and yet so far away. So much that's taught in religion is right, but not quite right. True, but not entirely true. It is true that God seeks our obedience to all his commandments, but it's not true that salvation comes as a result of our law-keeping. Read Galatians 3.10 that tells us that we have no hope that way, that whoever tries to gain salvation by keeping the law is under the curse of the law. It's true that a man must have faith and repent and confess his sins, but it's not true that these are to be sought before coming to Jesus. It is as we come, just as we are, that faith, repentance and confession are born along with the new heart that's ever the fruit of looking to Christ and away from self. We're indeed saved by works too, but they're Christ's works, which climax in the cross. Ours aren't good enough. It's indeed true that all true Christians obey, but they don't obey in order to be Christians, but because they've already become such by trusting in Christ. Christ and Christ alone is all that we're needing. Strength, willingness, all else in the Christian life come with the seeing of Christ in his death for us. Now, my friends, let me ask you, does your life reflect Luther's world or Wesley's? That is to say, the Luther who found that the good news was that the righteousness of God is the gift that he gives to all who believe. Or does your life reflect that of Wesley? trying hard to be good so God will accept your righteousness. One modern writer has said this, If we're conscious of our needs, we should not devote all our powers to mourning over them. While we realise our helpless condition without Christ, we're not to yield to discouragement. We're to rely upon the merits of a crucified and risen Saviour. Although millions who need to be healed will reject his offered mercy, not one who trusts in his merits will be left to perish. For the believer is not called upon to make his peace with God. He never has, nor ever can do this. He is to accept Christ as his peace. For with Christ is God and peace. That says it beautifully, doesn't it? Good, merry and glad tidings, as Tyndale says. It makes a man's heart to sing and his feet to dance. How can I convince you, my friend, of the importance of believing this good news? Death should remind us, for in the midst of life we are in death. That grim reaper never sends a notice card. One short life, it will soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. I was reading in the library one day when I plucked out a book, and inside on the frontispiece I read these words. Just think, one night the stars will gleam, Upon a cold grey stone And trace a name in silver beam And lo, t'will be your own Think of that, my friends 
think of that. No wonder at Pentecost, men who were cut to the heart cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? I want you to notice Peter's reply. Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The moment a man receives, he receives the light of God. The gift of the Spirit is the gift of God himself, my friends, and with God eternal life. For death is abolished for the believer. You noticed, I'm sure, that Peter's first word was repentance. That's the start. It comes by looking at the cross. The cross is the miracle-working rod that brings forth the tears of repentance from our hard, stony hearts. The trouble is, for you and me, we're too convinced that we don't need to repent. Let me tell you about Jaime in a parable that was written in the book of modern parables. Jaime had been dragged to the prison, kicking and screaming. I'm innocent, I tell you, he shouted for the 755th time as the turnkey slammed his cell door. Yeah, we're all innocent, buddy, came the harsh voice of Jaime's next cell neighbour. I've been here on a false rap for 15 years now, and I'm as innocent as the warden, maybe innocenter. Well, after a few weeks of screaming himself hoarse about his innocence, Jaime finally settled down to a routine that divided equal time between brooding over the injustice of it all and making feverish plans for getting the truth of his innocence before the right people. He spent many hours daydreaming of the governor's embarrassment when he hand-delivered the pardon to Jaime's cell. The governor would sputter and fumble and blush in an agony of self-reproach over imprisoning such a noble, innocent man while Jaime would keep a stern and unreadable face. The governor would offer all kinds of enticements to mollify Jaime. New cars, a fine suburban home with swimming pool and pool table, a set-up into his own little business. But no, Jaime would sue. His revenge would be as monumental as the injustice they'd wreaked upon him. Jaime's little eyes glittered in the gloom of his cell as he drank in the metal picture of the day when his innocence would triumph. In the meantime, Jaime did what he could on the home front. When he wasn't writing ten-page letters to senators and congressmen, he was at his post, at his cell door, shouting his innocence to everyone who passed by. When he didn't receive replies from most of his letters, he accused the warden of tampering with the federal mails. He shouted that too. One day, when Jaime had been locked up in his cell for almost a year, his eyes became tired from following the long letter he was writing with a stubby pencil. To rest his eyes, he went to his cell window and looked out and down the courtyard. The sight of grass greening and buds popping shocked him. There was life out there, glorious life. Somehow he'd forgotten that there was an outside, or at least that life, time, and the world were still going on beyond his bars. Because his own life had been stopped in mid-beat by his imprisonment, he let himself imagine that the whole world had stopped too, as if waiting with caught breath for that glorious day of the triumph of Jaime's innocence, that day when he would emerge from the hated prison, his innocence acknowledged. But now, there was that grass greening, there were those buds popping. It was too much for Jaime. The grass, the buds, everything living, growing and changing, except him. He was trapped. It wasn't the world that hung in suspended animation while Jaime busily scribbled and shouted. It was Jaime. He was the one that was trapped, immobile, like a bee in amber. 
while the rest of the world seethed by and around him. With a gasp, Jaime swept the carefully lettered pages from his bunk and he fell groaning into it. It was dark in the cell by the time that supper came. Here you are, Mr. Innocent, the turnkey joked as he slid Jaime's tray through the slot in the iron door. I'm not innocent, Jaime croaked, weary with it all. I'm guilty. Guilty as hell. What did you say? The turnkey asked, strangely excited, holding his breath to catch the soft answer. Guilty, sighed Jaime. I'm guilty. Immediately there was a rattling of the key in the lock, and when Jaime raised his head the door didn't look right. When he got up and gave the door a tentative push, it swung open broadly into the dusky, deserted corridor. Peeping timidly down the corridor, Jaime saw that other gates were hanging open for him, all the way to the front gate. There was still enough sunlight left to give him a glimpse of the greening grass and the bursting buds beyond. My friends, does that say something to you? And to me, I'm reading to you from John chapter 11. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I ask. I know that whatever I ask, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who should come into the world. Christ told the sisters of the one bereaved, Believe, and thou shalt see the glory of God. For death, my friends, has been abolished for all who believe in God's love for them, as shown on Calvary's cross. Believe, receive, and live forever, my friends. Believe today.